believe it or not, back in, say, the 1700s, if you had a medical procedure, there weren't a lot of options. Uh, you could uh, drink a lot of alcohol. You could get a, a rag or a towel and bite down on it. But if you had to have a surgical procedure, it was, there was no anesthesia available. So it was a great thing when Crawford W. Long, Dr. Crawford W. Long discovered ether, that ether could be used for anesthesia in the mid-1800s. Well, Oliver Wendell Holmes Sr. was a doctor, a surgeon, and he believed that if he was going, and most doctors don't do this, I, I wouldn't advise them to anyway, but he believed that he, would, he needed to do whatever he asked his patients to do, particularly this newfangled idea of ether. So, so he went under a dose of ether. And during this uh, experience, he had this profound, he just felt like he was transforming, he understood all the mysteries of the universe. Uh, but when he came back too, he couldn't remember exactly what the key to the mystery of the universe was. Uh, he remembered how powerful and how, how amazing he felt and, and the sense of satisfaction with finally understanding how all the world fit together, uh, but he couldn't remember the exact key. So he, he decided he would take ether again, but this time he had a stenographer there waiting to, to write down anything uh, that he said. And so sure enough, he went into ether and, and he had this amazing experience again. He mumbled something that the stenographer took down. When he came to, he asked, well, what did I say? And the stenographer said, just kind of sadly, uh, you said the key to the universe is permeated with a strong odor of turpentine. And that's all he said while he was under. Now, you might not know, ether is uh, closely related. In fact, uh, people who take ether, if they take it, uh, some people take it to get high, their breath actually smells like turpentine or gasoline uh, for uh, 12 hours, 24 hours afterwards. So I'd advise you, it, you don't need to get high on anything, but certainly don't get high on ether. The key to the universe, in our more meditative or reflective moments, we want to know what is the secret to life well lived? What is the key? What, what are the, uh, is the purpose of life? What is the, the mystery of the universe in a sentence or two? We love mysteries, do we humans? We eat up mystery novels. We love to watch mystery movies. We like to put the pieces together. Well, you know, and expository preaching is the, the form of preaching I believe in. Expository preaching in its simplest definition means to take a passage of Scripture and, and to unpack what it meant to the original audience by uh, looking at it in Greek or Hebrew, looking at it in English, trying to figure out what it meant to them, and then applying it to life today. Well, I do that by going through books of the Bible normally. That's my normal pattern. Uh, that's why the, doing the story was really hard for me because I didn't do that book study like I normally do. And when you go through Ephesians, uh, the reason I do that as I go through books, it, it makes me cover passages that I'm like, I don't know if I want to preach on this or, or this is hard to understand or it's hard to apply. And the passage we got today, uh, Ephesians 3, 1 through 13, it's one through the years when I was a young Christian, I read and I was like, you know, you read the whole thing and you're like, what? What was that about? But I'm telling you, uh, the reason I do this is because as, as I grow and as you grow, 
that the meaning can hit you differently. I should have had a teaser last week during the message time to come back next week and I'll unlock the key to the secret to the universe. Because that's, I think, what Paul is doing here as he talks about the mystery. As he talks about the mystery that he's in the process of revealing. If you want to know how everything can fit together, you read this passage and ask three questions. First, what is the mystery? Before you understand or unlock the mystery, you have to understand what the mystery is. In verses 1 through 6, for this reason I, Paul, the prisoner of Christ Jesus, he was literally in prison, not because of any crime, but because he preached the gospel. And it made other people who believed differently mad. And so they had him arrested and put in prison in Rome. <clears throat> Christ Jesus, for the sake of you Gentiles, dash. <laughs> you ever had a dog, you know, you're walking with or without a leash and, and a squirrel or rabbit comes across the path? What happens? A dog, if they're not well trained, whoop! You know, it's you know, squirrel, you know, wherever, which way you're going, they're going wherever the squirrel's going, right? Any people like that here that, you know, you're thinking about one thing and whoop, you go in a different direction. Maybe you talk like that or write like that. Well, that Paul does that. And even it, what I love about it is it shows that scripture is inspired by God. He inspired a certain men to write down the words that he wanted that would be God-breathed and inspired and profitable for education and teaching, edification. Uh, but he, he took people with their humanity, and he makes them like that. And so here he shifts, and from verse 2 on down to verse 13, it's a whole other thought. He'll come back to that first part, right? He did the same thing when he was talking about the mystery. You first see mystery in verse 9 of chapter 1. And now it's like his mind comes back to this mystery. Surely you have heard about the administration of God's grace that was given to me for you. That is, the mystery made, no, made known to me by revelation, as I've already written briefly, verse 9, chapter 1. In reading this, then, you'll be able to understand my insight into the mystery of Christ, which was not made known to people in other generations, as it has now been revealed by the Spirit. Now listen, I think there were clues to the mystery, even from the Garden of Eden, from creation. Just like you read a novel, mystery novel, or watch a mystery movie, they plant clues there to try to figure out. You can kind of see, if looking particularly back in hindsight, that they were pointing you to the villain or solving the puzzle for you. Likewise, in Scripture, there were clues, but this mystery was not made fully known to people in other generations, as it has now been revealed by the Spirit to God's holy apostles and prophets. Verse 6, the answer to the mystery. The mystery is that through the gospel, the good news of Jesus Christ, the Gentiles are heirs together with Israel, members together of one body, and sharers together in the promise in Christ Jesus. That is an important verse. That gives us the answer to what is the mystery. And what word is repeated there? Together. We are heirs together, he first says. What is an heir? Uh, someone who, uh, by virtue of relationship with someone else, 
is able to share in their resources. They receive an inheritance. By, they're connected in relationship. Uh, the Bible's terms are a family of God the Father. And as we understand and own our sinfulness, the good news, the gospel, as we understand and own our sinfulness, as we confess it and repent of it to God, as we trust in Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior, then the Bible says we become his sons and his daughters. We are heirs together. We are members together, what? In one body. In other words, the core of meaning and revelation of this a mystery is the formation of the church, a living body of Jesus. Not the walls of a church building, but the people who have come and, and confessed their sin, who have become sons and daughters. These members together join together in this body of Christ. We become brothers and sisters, even those of us who are only children. When we become Christians, we have brothers and sisters in Christ, brothers and sisters made possible by the blood of Christ. And we are sharers together in the promise. All of it linked together by that word, together. Friends, I think what is so problematic for our world today is we fundamentally are individualistic. That is, we think in terms of me and mine. We live in a world, a world, the world populated by people led by the flesh that is competitive. And even for us, as we become Christians, we, we still have that competitive streak. We still, if we don't watch it, can be mostly motivated by our own self-interest and be about me and mine. It's very possible today to live a life isolated from others. And even in church, a lot of times we want to come into a church and, and be anonymous. We want to come in and get a, a service and then go out. That's not the picture painted here, is it? No, the church is a body uh, that sees and does life together. Uh, the church is a body that goes beyond that uncomfortable nature of, of doing things together. We we join together in spite of that. I think it would be very important, not only for the church. I really think, as Bill Havel says, the local church is the hope for the world. I believe our world is divided in lots of different ways. It's divided by issues of race. It's divided by issues of gender. It's divided by issues of socioeconomic class. It's divided by issues of ethnicity. And listen, all of those divisions can be prevalent in the church. But what this says is the body of Christ should be united in Christ despite those differences. We do life together. We come in the same way together. We read a little earlier in Ephesians chapter 2 that none of us are saved by our works. None of us become sons and daughters of God's by what we do. We don't have to prove ourselves. We come into the kingdom. We come into the family of God by God's grace. And as we believe that, we become his sons and daughters, not by works, right? So we get that. We start understanding that. I really think 
we should work on removing I and mine from our vocabulary, particularly as we think spiritually. We should be thinking in terms of we and our. In the Philippines, to in this modern day, there is a native indigenous tribe called the Eta Negrita. These folks have resisted the push to modernism. They still are a hunter-gatherer culture. They're nomadic and move about. Sadly, their numbers are being limited and, and their, their environment's being encroached upon because of modernity uh, where they're being forced to have more contact with other groups. These Ada Negrita folks, uh, they live near the mountainous regions of Luzon. Uh, they, to the point where their men still wear loincloths, and they don't do a lot of things the way everybody else does. Well, some years ago, British missionaries went to live among them to share the good news of Jesus with them. And the missionaries were having an afternoon a leisure time, and, and they were playing one of their favorite games. They were playing croquet. Does everybody here know what croquet is? Anybody here used a croquet mallet for something you shouldn't have used it for? It's a game, right? It started in England. It was played on those vast lawns. And you put little metal hoops in the ground, and you have a series of colored balls, and you have a mallet that you hit the ball. And the goal is to hit the ball through a series of these hoops until you get through that last one and you win, okay? And a lot of times it's played in teams. Uh, this sport, <laughs> it was kind of eclipsed. It's not nearly as popular anymore because uh, they began to play tennis on grass. That's why they play Wimbledon in London. Uh, they played tennis on grass there. So <clears throat> you have these people, these missionaries playing croquet. Now, there's a problem with this sport. It seems very sophisticated and civilized, doesn't it? But you play croquet, there's one little rule. It really is viciously competitive, right? Because you can use your ball to hit somebody else's ball out of position, Right? Not only can you hit your ball through the hoop, but you can use your ball to hit somebody else out, right? Some of you play croquet that way, I'm sure. And so they were playing croquet, and, and they were having a good time, and, and the Agita and the Grita saw this, and they said, can we play? And so a group led by the chief, they came to play croquet with the missionaries. And so the, the chief was doing well. He's kind of a natural. He hit the ball, and he got in position, good position uh, to to successfully go through the hoop but the missionary said to him look there's your opponent's ball right by the hoop you need to knock that out of the way that's how we play the game you knock the ball out of the way of your opponent and the the chief was just mystified you see in hunter-gatherer societies they don't really think of it as just me if one struggles all of them struggle when when something is gathered or something is hunted and killed they they share it together if one of them struggles all of them struggle if one of them is successful all of them are successful so the, <laughs> the chief ignored the missionary's advice he played his ball and as it so happened he won but he didn't celebrate because he was the first one through he went back and helped the others who were still negotiating the game of croquet when the last person hit the ball through the last two. Then they all celebrated. Then they said, we won. We won. And the missionaries were there to teach them something. 
we need each other. I don't really think you should think about being a Christian as an individual. We need to think in terms of we, the body, share this journey together. Now, let me shake you up a little bit. You know, we don't do anything in the service just to fill time. Y'all might have noticed we didn't do the greeting time earlier. Did anybody miss the greeting time earlier? Those of you who have been here a while? Well, we're going to do it to right now. Okay, you're going to set your bottles and notes aside. We're going to do that because it's an important, I think, action that we incorporate in the service every week that we're going to, to worship together. We're going to, to come together with our flaws and weaknesses and And we're united by Christ to be together, to share life together. And we're going to greet one another. We're going to welcome one another to the service. Okay, let's stand up and do that. Don't be shy. Let's welcome one another. All right, good job. Good job. You can have a seat. Pick your Bibles up. Get your pens and papers back out. See, we do that for a reason. It's to, to remind us of this, this need to be together, to not be individual islands unto ourselves. So that answers the question, what is the mystery? But then the second question I think of is, how is the mystery revealed? How do we take this mystery to people who don't know? And to whom are we to take it, right? Verses 7 through 11. I, this is Paul, became a servant of this gospel by the gift of God's grace given me through the working of his power. It's not by Paul's ability, he's saying. He's saying, I have this, this burden. I have this motivation to share this mystery with others, to, to tell others about this good news. Although I am less than the least of all the Lord's people, very important, he's saying any of us and all of us have the responsibility to take this message out. We don't need to hoard it to ourselves. We need to share it with others. And I think he means not just with your words. In fact, even more maybe he means to show by our actions this unity, to show by our actions this humility, to show by our actions this commitment to serving one another out of love for Christ. This grace was given to me to preach to the Gentiles the boundless riches of Christ. Some versions say the unsearchable riches of Christ. What's really cool is the... A child can understand the gospel, but I guarantee you as long as you follow Christ, as long as you uh, learn and grow, you will never reach the bottom of understanding all of Christ, all of his, what his grace and his mercy and his love mean. But we share that with others to make plain to everyone the administration of this mystery, which for ages past was kept hidden in God who created all things. His intent was that now, through the church, the manifold wisdom of God should be made known to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly realms according to his eternal purpose that he accomplished in Christ Jesus our Lord. A couple important things there. First, to whom is the mystery to be revealed? He says to the Gentiles. The Gentiles in those times were the people who didn't have a religious belief. Those people who were uh, pagan, if you will. You know, some preachers are all up in arms. They're all discouraged because the sociologists tell us that the number of individuals in America that check 
religious preference none is growing by leaps and bounds i don't i'm not discouraged by that i'm encouraged that means there are a lot more people to take and show the mystery to there are a lot more people to tell the mystery to hey listen this says that the gentiles are a target group for us to take the mystery to he also then says to everyone lest we by some label uh, think that some people aren't worthy every one of us are the same really we sin and fall short we can be saved by the grace of god and then he says and this really blows my mind verse 10 he says that when the church is doing what the church should do when the church is all about we and our instead of i and mine when the church is living as the body of christ then it enlightens the angels and the demons that's what he's saying in verse 10 that they are marveling they are mystified they're amazed that the church can take people black and white people male and female people rich and poor and they can come together they can be united together in the unity of the spirit through the bond of peace that the angels and demons marvel at that that's pretty cool isn't it so how is the mystery revealed it's revealed through us all of us not just the preachers not just those in vocational ministry through all of us we take and share this mystery with all of us we take and share this good news third question what does the mystery mean to us well i've already started on that by saying that it means we share it with others but what does the mystery mean to us verses 12 and 13 in him jesus and through faith in him we may approach god with freedom and confidence New RSV says in English, we may approach God with boldness and confidence. I, I think that's an important change. That word in Greek there means to have uh, uh, courage in the face of, of formidable circumstances. In the case of, of really struggles that are difficult. I ask you therefore not to be discouraged because of my sufferings for you, which are your glory. Now a couple things are really important to see there. One, we may approach God with boldness and confidence. <laughs> Maybe you're like me. One thing I hate about the technology age we live in is phone trees, right? You try to call a business, and you got to punch a button, and then you punch another button. I hate it when I have to punch in my account number, and then I get somebody on the phone, and they say, what's your account number? Doesn't that drive y'all crazy, too? So you want to get somebody. That didn't drive me crazy when they say, you really need to see a doctor, a specialist for this, but it'll be six weeks till you can get an appointment. We can approach God, no weight necessary, in him and through him. Through Jesus, I mean, that's mind-blowing to me. Through Jesus... I can come to God with my problems. I can come to him with my fears. I can come to him with my needs. That's amazing. But notice something. I'm telling you, I've been preaching for 30 years, and this week, one little word jumped out at me and made all the difference. It was so striking 
that I went back and read this in Greek. What does it say? That in him and through faith in him, we approach God. In English, it says we. It does not say you. In Greek, it says we. And he very well could have made it say you. We can approach God. See, it is vital for us to realize that we need each other. It is vital for us to travel the road together. To, when someone's struggling, we help pick them up and take them to God. When somebody needs boldness or courage, we pick them up and we take them to God. We, not I, we, not you, we approach the Father through the vehicle of the Son. <clears throat> the mid-1800s, in the height of the Civil War, there was a middle-aged man on a park bench in Washington, D.C., crying uncontrollably. You know, people then were like people now. They kind of, you know, cut their eyes at him and then walked to the other side of the street. They wouldn't acknowledge that obviously this man's in great distress. <clears throat> a little boy came by, and he did what the, all the adults wouldn't. He went over and said, man, or sir, what's, what's wrong? Can I help you? The man, through his sobs, eventually got out what was causing all his pain. You see, his son was a, a soldier in the army. In a difficult moment, he abandoned his post. Because of that, he'd been tried and sentenced to death by execution by a firing squad. The man was inconsolable. The little boy said, sir, come with me. What? But the man didn't know what else to do, so he did. And they walked up the street, took a turn, and walked to the gate of the White House, where there were armed soldiers. He said, it's okay, the little boy did, that he's with me. And so they let him by. They went into the White House and went up to the Oval Office. Again, armed soldiers. The little boy said, it's okay, you can let us pass, he's with me. And they went into the Oval Office. The president was meeting with some generals and some advisors. The president saw his son come in with a stranger. He said, okay, we can take a little break. And the little boy climbed up into the president's lap. And he said, Daddy, this man has a problem. We need to help him. And so the president pardoned this man's son. In him and through faith in him, we can approach God with boldness and confidence. We can approach God. We can have victory over addiction. We can have marriages made whole. We can have families brought back together. We we can do immeasurably more than we ever ask 
or imagine. We, the church, can bring unity where there's much division. We, the living, breathing body of Christ, we can change the world. Fathers, we think about these things today. There are things we need to bring to you. But I pray we bring them together. Maybe we share it with somebody close to you. And we together bring it before you. I'm grateful that you get us out of our comfort zone if we'll trust you to not do Christianity by ourselves but to realize it's a team sport and together as you reveal yourself to us as you empower us together we can make a profound difference both in our own lives in the lives of those around us. I pray today that you're at work. You've broken through the shells that stop up our ears. You've broken through that shell around our heart that today we hear your call and we'll respond in Jesus' name. Amen. It's ministry time. You have a decision to make. Maybe it is to become a Christian. We'd love to help you with that. Maybe to join us formally. But I hope you hear very clearly two points of application. One, what are we doing to share the mystery, the good news with others? And how we live and what we say. And two, what what is it that we need to bring to God? Who is it perhaps that we need to bring with us to God? Remember, if one struggles... All of us struggle. Let's stand and go to sing. If you have a decision, please come.